The text for the sermon this day is taken from Matthew chapter 9, which you heard earlier. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, in the text, we have Matthew, the author of the gospel, and he's telling the story of how he was called. Matthew was a tax collector. In the time of Jesus, tax collectors were hated. And not just, not because they collect, not that they collected taxes was the problem. So any idea of taxation is theft, sorry, that does not work with scripture. And that's not what's going on here. The reality is, is that Matthew, the problem was, is who and how he was collecting taxes. So in the time, so when the Romans would conquer a territory, or conquer a region, they would hire up, they would make sure to collect taxes from those people to gain profit from it. Now, if you were to hire tax collectors, what would be the most cost-efficient way to do it? You could hire out your own people, set them on a ship, and send them to Jerusalem, But because remember, they didn't have 747s at that time. So, Instead of doing that, they figured the most cost-effective is to hire people who are local. And so they would hire from Jews to collect the taxes. So the person that, so they would hire a Jewish person, so in the case of Matthew, Matthew is a Jew. And so they would hire them to take money from their neighbors to give them, to give that money to the any enemy occupying government that is the Romans. So in other words, they are you have people taking money from their own friends and family and giving it to the enemy. There's a word for that type of person. Traitor. That is how tax collectors were viewed in the time of Jesus. They were seen as traitors. And to make it even make matters even worse, quite often the tax collectors would take more money than they were supposed to. The reason being is because they would pocket it for themselves. Now, technically, it was illegal. Technically, the soldiers weren't allowed, supposed to let them do that. But the soldiers know not many people want to be tax collectors. And so they let them do it. In fact, those tax collectors would quite often use the might of the soldiers to get away with taking that extra money. Tax collectors were hated by their own people. And if you're thinking, well, the Romans must love them because they're collecting money, nope. As it is in any time in any history, if you betray someone that's close to you, you're not going to be loved by the people who you betrayed on behalf of. Because one thing you learn is you don't trust a traitor, even if they're helping you. So for Matthew, he was hated by everybody. No one liked him. And he couldn't exactly keep his, his, his sin 
He couldn't really keep his condition, his grief, or his shame secret. It was out in the public for everyone to see. He was standing at a tax booth, carrying out the thing that he is ashamed of. And what does Jesus do? Jesus goes to him, and he doesn't, does he say, Hey, listen up, Matthew. What, why don't you give up this job, get your act together, and then let's talk. He doesn't do that. He just says to him, follow me. And he does. Matthew leaves behind everything he's doing, and he goes. And by the way, notice, Matthew did not accept Jesus. Jesus accepted Matthew. Get that in the right order. Anybody tells you you have to accept Jesus into your heart, that's a work. You don't need to accept Jesus into your heart. Jesus accepts you. Don't get that backwards. Jesus chose this man in the midst of his shame, in the midst of his sin. And so he followed him, and like I said, this is actually quite nuts. I mean, think about this. Imagine if, imagine you're at Subway or Casey's or whatever, and somebody just came up to the guy behind the register and said, hey, follow me. You don't, I'm sure you maybe have heard of who the person is, but you don't know him totally. You just walk up and say, hey, follow me, and then they leave their work and just follow this person. Stranger? That's incredible. Why does Matthew do it? Because that tells you who Jesus is. Jesus has such the power that he can make obstinate sinners, stubborn people, hear his voice and they will follow. And that's also why it's important to remember that he makes the choice. If God left it up to us to choose, no one would be saved. We want nothing to do with God. We need him to come to us. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Previously in the Gospel of Matthew, which by the way, if you, if you go downstairs on Sunday mornings, right now the Bible study is going through the Gospel of Matthew. But if you go farther back at the Gospel of Matthew, there's what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. During early on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, to the, says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I bring that up because the thing that the Pharisees don't get in this situation is even though they think they are righteous, they are not. They are no different than the tax collectors and sinners. 
But see, they're really offended. They're really concerned about Jesus. Because at this point in Jesus' ministry, they're trying to protect him. They like Jesus, kind of. He's kind of popular. He's saying some really neat things. And the thing is, in Jewish time, it's kind of like high school or middle school. You always were mindful about who you ate dinner with. It's kind of like the cafeteria. At least it was when I was in high school. Everybody was afraid to eat lunch with the wrong person. If you ate with certain people, they're like, oh, what are you eating with that person for? The time in Jewish culture, who you ate with was everything. And so Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners was such a scandal. But again, the Pharisees don't get that they are no better off. And the reality is, is none of you are better off either. All of us have sin. Sin of shame. We live in a small community. And one of the things with a small community, sometimes there are many blessings that come with it. Blessings that you know people readily. You still live in a town where sometimes people will wave at you. Seems to be going that seems to be happening less and less. I don't know why. But you know, wave at you while you're driving by. If somebody's in need of help, there's readily someone available to help you. But one of the downsides that comes with a small community is once you your reputation becomes a certain way. It seems impossible to shake it. It seems everybody looks at you and knows, oh, there's that one person that they had that one thing. Quite often we know the people who they have that shame and guilt that's out in the public. Maybe that person who's in the bar every night and they drink and they drink and they drink until the bar closes and they stumble out. There's a person that we know that they struggle with a drug addiction. It's a person that we know that they maybe had an affair with someone. And once that news gets out, it's the talk of the town. We even like to look at the news, the, the police blotter, the police report on the back of the newspaper. And when you see it's someone we know, oh, did you hear about what such and such did? Did you hear what happened? becomes the gossip and the talk of the town. But the thing is, is the weird thing is when we are doing that, we become no different than those Pharisees, ignoring the own, our own sin, our sin that isn't always so obvious. We all, many, all of us have a shame, have a guilt that we pray that no one would know about. The word, the fights that we may have, the words we've said to our, our spouses, our children, our parents. Words, if we said it to anybody else, they would have nothing to do with us. And yet we say it to those who we, say, who we love. When I was growing up, in order to access dirty pictures, you'd have to sneak away the magazine from your older brother. Not that that was, yes, that was an experience, I'll admit. But when you get, nowadays, 
It's as close as a cell phone. Anybody can access it anytime, anywhere. And the age at which children, kids are accessing it is getting younger and younger and younger. Even worse is you're having kids sending those pictures to one another. The shame, the guilt that comes from sending it, making it, looking at it. The shame is also prevalent in our culture. We could go through a laundry list of issues, a laundry list of things, of shames and guilts. We are no different than Matthew. But Jesus says the same thing to you. Follow me. He doesn't say, hey, get your act together. He will tell you he's going to get your act together, but he doesn't say get your act together first. He just looks at you in your sinfulness, in your brokenness, and he just says to you, follow me. Don't look your, set your eyes on your sin. Don't look at your guilt. Don't look at your shame. Look at him. Look at his wounds. Look at the blood that he has shed on the cross. That is for you. Follow him. When you were baptized, that is when the beginning of that following began. That is him calling you to look on him. Look on his mercy. There's this kind, you maybe you've heard this before, it's kind of a cliche at this point. But a lot of times we get this idea, we sometimes get tempted to treat the church as a bit of a country club. Where basically we pay our dues and make sure, and the more, better you pay your dues, the better you need to be treated. And more, more hours and time you put in, that means you get, get higher up on the totem pole. And so quite often, the pastoral quite often the pastoral staff can get treated like the concierge, always on the beck and call. But the reality is that we are not a, we are not a country club. We are a hospice care. We are all dying in our sin. And we are all in need of the same Savior. We are all in need of the same mercy. We are all in need of the same physician. Because we are sick in our sin. And so we come to this place to hear the word, to receive that medicine. To be strengthened, to be nourished, to be given life. To be set free from the shackles of our sin. Follow him. Set your eyes on him. And in him is true freedom. And when I say freedom, I don't mean like, I don't mean American political freedom. Which that's a wonderful thing. But that is not what God is promising. God promises an even greater freedom.
American political freedom is where we have the freedom of religion, we have the freedom of speech, freedom of press, all those wonderful things. But God gives you a greater freedom. Freedom in Christ is when your eyes are so set on him because God meets you the way you are. He says, follow me in your condition. He doesn't wait for you to be perfect. He comes to you and he delivers to you righteousness. He gives you his righteousness. But he is not going to leave you as he found you. Freedom in Christ is, he con is being conformed. Your will being conformed to his. That every decision you make is always in line with his will. Because that is where true freedom is. What you desire is what leads to life instead of death. And the meal, yes, he invites you to supper. One of the weird things that's happened for me is a, in the last couple weeks. So, Last Sunday, I was preaching at Camp Okaboji. The two Sundays before that, I was at Christ Lutheran Church in Wolf Lake, Minnesota. And, so, and, the, and the Sundays that I have been here have been our non-communion Sundays. And so a weird thing that has happened is I've actually not had communion since Confirmation Sunday. And, I, and honestly, it's kind of one of those things I begin to thirst. And you're thinking... Well, Pastor, why don't you give yourself communion? We don't do that. No private communion. That's why even when I commune a shut-in, I take communion with them. There is no such thing as private communion. So, actually, I take it back. I did have communion with Golden Rice, so it's a little bit closer than that. But either way, I'm wondering, how do people go without it for so long? How can I look at lists of people who have not been here, have not received it in years? We do they do we are there people are those there are those who don't have sin? Are there those whose lives are absolutely utterly perfect and nothing bad is happening? I can't imagine that exists. There are those who will say, well. You wouldn't believe how bad I am. I'm not good enough to go to church. I'm like, that's like saying I'm too sick to go to the hospital. Like, nope, that's why you go to the hospital, because you're sick. You go to church because you need Christ. You need this mercy. He invites sinners to feast upon his body and his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Don't ever neglect it. Don't ever not receive it. For kids, when you go off to college, the very first thing you do when you go to college, find a church and be there as soon as possible. Don't neglect it. You cannot go through college without Christ carrying you through. You need his supper and we all do because in it he delivers mercy 
He delivers medicine, forgiveness, and strength for weary souls such as us. May we ever set our hearts and minds on him until he returns and brings us to the everlasting feast with plenty and plenty of food for all of us to enjoy. Till that day comes, to him be all glory. In Jesus' name, amen.